chapter 11. The Apostle Paul in this chapter is laying out for us, we say the roll call of the faithful and so on. It's the chapter on faith and different examples. And that's what they are. They are examples. When it talks about witnesses uh, having so great a cloud of witnesses, it's not that these people are up there looking at us and watching what we're doing so much as the, they're giving a testimony. This is a record of their testimony that they have given to us. You know, and we have this body of work, of testimony, of those who have gone before, and what, how God used them in their lifetimes and the things that they accomplished because of faith. Uh, For by grace are you saved through faith. But that's not the end of faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We're kept by the power of God through faith. And this is how it is borne out. And again, these were just individual people. They were not some... Larger than we we build them up in our minds. There are some larger in life people. No, they're just you and me. They're people saved by God's grace. And the same things we go through history, and we we can't mention all the names. We can't talk about all the people and all the events and things like that. But understand when you're reading that these are just people like you and me. And your sons and daughters and grandchildren and your grandparents and parents that went through life in these times, facing these circumstances. But as we've said before, and I've many times I've preached, and, and it's constantly coming up that you see that what Solomon said there in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We're dealing with the same human nature. We're dealing with the same adversary. Our adversary, the devil, going about seeking whom he may devour. Every generation has to deal with that adversary. And that adversary, the influence he has on the culture in which we live and breathe and move and have our being. He has an influence on that culture. He did in these days. That's what we're studying. And we have the same struggles with ourself, with our flesh, with the culture around us, and trying to serve God. And it's by the grace of God, as Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that's true for every one of us. Whatever we accomplish as a child of God, whatever good we do it's by the grace of God. It's not by the flesh. It's by not by the old nature. It's not by Tim Works or anyone else, but it's by the grace of God. And, and I, I like to keep things in in focus in that way. As we, I know in high school and, and elementary school and on, you're studying history, and it's just dates and places and people that you, except for the history you never heard of before. You know, and, and it can be dry and boring. 
But I remember, you know, I talked about when I was first saved and they gave me a copy of the Trail of Blood and I read that. And it's not the same as in the Scripture. And brother, I, I have the same experience. You're reading the Scripture, you see a verse and the Lord just uses that verse. It draws your attention, just draws you in. It has a, a unique impact upon your, your mind and, and heart at that time. And you may have read that verse a hundred times before, but because of circumstances in your life at that time, that verse means something to you. And reading history has a similar, it's not quite as impactful as that, but as I would study history and I would read about these people, it drew me in. I became one of those people. I saw, myself, I saw those people as my contemporaries, if you will. And that's one of the things I want to try to get across, that this is not some dry, boring... I hope it's not. <laughs> but for you to see these people as real, just as real as you, just as real as your parents, just as real as your children, and the emotions you feel for them, and the impact they have on your life, and the impact you have on others' lives... We're reading about that. And that's what the Scripture is telling us. And, and over in, in Hebrews, it talks, he kind of sums this up, beginning with verse 13. And, and what shall I say more, or more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection." And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. And they were stoned, and they were sawn asunder. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. Uh, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And the promise he's talking about there is in the resurrection. When we receive our glorified bodies and the promises that, that God, when this mortal shall put on immortality, when this corruption shall put on incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. That's the promise. And they haven't received that promise yet. That's the reason the scripture says, we'll not go ahead of those that are asleep that have already passed on. They're present with the Lord, but when He comes back, He's going to bring them with Him. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we that are alive and remain to the coming Lord will be changed. And together we'll go up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so that's kind of what the, this reference here 
These all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, I know many times in my history books, and I have done this too, have used this portion. Of course, he's talking about Old Testament saints here. But have used this and applied this. Get my pointer out here. As particularly to the saints, as we said, it's, it's recorded some 50 million Baptists, men, women, boys, girls, perished during this thousand year period alone. Not counting all of them that perished before or that perished over here. And so this verse has been applied to this. Now this morning we're coming to this, uh, the Dark Ages part 2 from 1000 A.D. to 1499 A.D. 500 years, the second half. Which, as we've been going through here, is represented to us by the church in Thyatira. And we see there in verse 20, we read last night, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And so, we've been talking about that, the rise of the papacy, how the Catholic Church had uh, in the... West, Remember the kingdom, going back to Constantine, he had set up two capitals. Uh, the East and West, uh, Rome, the capital of the West, Constantinople, uh, the capital in the East. But the Germanic tribes, when they came in, they came into the West, and the Western part of the empire collapsed. But the Eastern part continued on. But we see that there was uh, always a certain, there was two capitals, and there was a rivalry within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church uh, between these two capitals. Uh, And the eastern part, which was ruled from Constantinople, which was under the emperors, but the, the bishop of the church in Constantinople was kind of the rival of the bishop of the church in Rome. And the contentions got so heavy that there was kind of a split. I think uh, back here, J.M. Carroll in his book uh, gives the date of... Um, now let me get up here close enough so I can see it. Uh, oh, 869 A.D. When the, the two bishops kind of excommunicated one another. Now it happens again later, which we will cover in our notes uh, down in here that uh, the emperor tried to get the, uh, the two factions together and they couldn't resolve their differences and those two bishops excommunicated each other also. And so that's why today you have Roman Catholic Church, but you also have the Greek Orthodox Church. And it has different forms. The Russian Orthodox is a part of the Eastern a church, uh, and so you have because 
in the east, remember that under Alexander, he had spread the Greek language over the majority of the world that he had conquered. And that became kind of the second language. That was the like English is today in the world. The Greek had become that, that second language, the common language. Now after the fall in the West, Latin becomes that second language. And so you have the Latin church and the Greek church. And we have that to this day. Well, that's where that came from. You know, Constantine kind of created that division unintentionally. History is full of unintended consequences. You think you have a good idea, but when you implement it, there are some domino effects, there are some things that, that you didn't foresee happening. And the consequences come back, and you don't like the consequences. But that's what happens sometimes. And that's the, another reason why it's so important to stick to the Scriptures. Thus saith the Lord. Because man is constantly coming up with a better idea. He thinks he can improve on things. And man even has the audacity to think he can improve on God's original pattern. Not going to work. He may think he has a good idea and he comes up with something new. Well, let's try this or let's do it this way. Down the road there's going to be some consequences that you never foresaw. If you stick with the Scriptures and you follow, Thus saith the Lord, whatever happens, you're going to be okay. You're going to be on the right side. Just a thought. So as we look at this period of time, the genuine churches, the Baptist churches, continue to preach the Word. Just like Paul said there in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. You know, there's two words in the Bible. And they have the same kind of idea, and that's patience and long-suffering. I learned, to me, this is an interesting fact. Patience is applied to dealing with circumstances. Adverse circumstances. Long-suffering is when you're dealing with people. Think on that one for a little bit. Patience is dealing with circumstances, things. That's like getting stuck in traffic. And you want to hurry up and get somewhere. But there's a traffic jam. That's patience. But when there's somebody on your last nerve, that's long-suffering. <laughs> and look, you, look, you follow in the Scripture, that's, that's how it breaks it up. Look it up in the Greek in, in your, your concordance. That's how they're distinguished. And so he said, you know, preach the Word. 
Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. You're dealing with people and doctrine, teaching. And that's what they're doing. And I mean they're suffering. Quite literally. Uh, During this period of time. Apostate Christianity, Jezebel, the, the Catholic Church, the mystery of iniquity at work, which is Satan's agenda, that he is moving toward his end goal. And again, it's so important to keep that in mind. He has an end goal, and Paul reveals what that is, that mystery of iniquity, in that same book a few verses before. The man of sin wants to sit in the temple of God in Jerusalem, showing himself that he is God and getting the world to worship him and acknowledge him as God. That's his goal. And everything that has happened in history, especially you know, from this point here on, that's what he's working toward. We talk about a one world government. That's what the Pope was trying to create even back here in the Dark Ages. That's why he wanted Jerusalem. And, but he had to gain certain power politically to accomplish that. And so that's part of the, the history. Now when we get down into this part of the history, we're getting into more familiar territory. At least we know a few things about this period of time. But one of the, uh, well, 11 or 1054 A.D., a council was called by the emperor in the east. Uh, but again, Pope Leo IX and Patriarch Cerellius of Constantinople mutually excommunicated each other, completing the schism which began back in 869 and never resolved. In 1073 to 1077, Pope Hildebrand, Gregory the Seventh, and Emperor Henry the Fourth battle over the right of investure, and this came down to that dual allegiance between many of the bishops and cardinals and things who were granted titles and lands by a king or another noble, and in this, uh, the feudal system as a vassal, then he owed his allegiance to that noble who granted him the title and land. But he also, as an officer of the church, owed an allegiance to the pope. And so there was this dual allegiance, and the pope didn't like that. But the nobles liked being able to do that because that gave them some control that the bishop in their kingdom was subject to them and would do what they want. And may and sometimes maybe defy the Pope, defy the church. And so it came down to this struggle, and the Pope won. The Pope forced the Emperor to come to him barefooted, bareheaded, in the winter, and wait outside his door until he gave him audience to come in. He humiliated him. Come and ask forgiveness. 
And from that time, the Pope, the kingdoms owed their allegiance to the Pope. Not just the bishops, not just the officers of the church, but every noble, every king owed his allegiance and held his territory as vassals to the Pope. Now the Pope had the power as the head over his vassals. I don't like the fact that these Muslims control Jerusalem. I want Jerusalem. He called for a crusade against Islam there to capture the Holy Land and to capture Jerusalem. And so this one set the stage for the other to be able to be done. And we become familiar with this. How many are you familiar with Richard the Lionheart? See, now we're getting into some territory here of history we're familiar with. Now what's significant about Richard of Lionheart that we're so familiar with? Well, he was away on the Crusades. And his brother, John, was left to run England. And John tried to steal the crown from his brother. Have you ever heard of Robin Hood? <laughs> That's when this... And we're familiar with that story, aren't we? See, but that, this is the... Uh, you know, when we get into here and we get into the Crusades and things, that's part of the history and the, the consequences and things of the mystery of iniquity, the Catholic Church, and these things that are going on, this struggle. And while this is going on, there's Baptists out there preaching the gospel. There's Baptists out there going to people in villages and towns. The Waldenses, they had a, a, an interesting system. Because they're hidden away in the mountain valleys and things there in the Alps. And remember, we go back to 300, 400 A.D. when Constantine made Catholicism the official religion of the empire. And most cities and towns had two churches, one Baptist and one Catholic. Well, now the Catholics were in control and they turned the, the sword of the state loose against their opponents, the Baptists, and they were driven out of the cities and, and all the towns and they went up into the mountains. They found hiding places up in the, these remote valleys of the Alps and settled there and eventually became known as the Waldenses. All you young preachers, you know, you grow up a, a church and the pastor and there's this fellowship of churches and in your mind you want to become the pastor of one of these churches. The Waldensians had a system. If you wanted to pastor one of the churches here in the valley, first of all, you had to go out and spend years as a missionary. And if you survived... Then you got on the list if there was an opening here. But you had to go out and risk your life and preach the gospel. And they had a network. They said these uh, Waldensian missionaries could travel all over Europe and every night find a home that would take them in. And they would travel as sale, you know, tinkers, you know, selling pots, pants, whatever. But they carried Scripture. They would carry scripture with them. 
and they'd get to talking to a family. You know, I grew up in a time when we still had some door-to-door salesmen. Matter of fact, I spent some time as a door-to-door salesman. <laughs> and you go in, you sit down, you talk with the family, and you talk about whatever it is you're selling and everything. And that's what they would do. And while they was there, they'd spark up a conversation about God and about Scripture. And they'd have Scripture that they would pass on. Because that's what they was doing in those mountains. They preserved these original Scriptures in the Greek, which was that common language. They also preserved it in their native Latin. And you know, it was their Bible that was the foundation and basis for the uh, King James Bible? Where did they get these manuscripts that they used to translate into English from? Majority of them was those that had been preserved by the Waldenses. You know, we have this. And we take this for granted. It's so accessible. It's so easy to obtain and to have. Well, I, there for a while it was getting hard to find a King James Version in these Bible bookstores. They had everything else in the world, but maybe over here in the corner somewhere they'd have a few. Now it's kind of swinging back the other way. They're finding, it. well, if we want to sell Bibles, we're going to have to have some that are King James. Anyway, don't want to digress too far in that direction. But um, that's what they were doing. This is going on at the same time as the Crusades and King Richard and all this other stuff is happening. And if they're discovered under Catholicism, under the laws that they have imposed, it's the death penalty. They don't slap you on the back of the wrist. They don't put you in jail unless it's just to keep you there until they can have their mock trial and have you burn at the stake. So... They were destitute. They wandered, you know, in deserts and saying, they, of whom the world was not worthy. These are God's people, His saints, simply doing what God commanded them to do. And they paid a price. But they also gained a great victory. Because the gates of hell was not able to prevail against them. They were never completely silenced. But you know, and that's something else. Again, nothing new under the sun. Let's bring some, some of this thought down to our present day and what we're experiencing. Those who are in power, and remember, Catholicism was in power. It was a political power. It's not just a religion. It was a political power. They ruled the kings of the earth. And again, isn't that who Jesus Christ is? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king of the kings of the earth. That's what the Pope wanted to be. You know, he claims to be the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on earth. And basically, he's assuming all the rights and privileges of Christ. And here he sits as the lord over the kings of the earth. Where Satan, and again, there's nothing new. This is one 
manifestation of this principle. But you go back into the book of Psalms, and David writes about it. He says, righteousness exalteth a nation. He's not just talking about Israel. This is true of any nation. Righteousness will exalt a nation. We grew to be the great nation that we were because of the righteousness of God. He said, but sin is a reproach to any people. In another place he says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. See, they're exalted. They're prosperous. The people are going to be happy. But when the wicked bear rule. And I always thought it was an interesting contrast in how that's worded. When the righteous are in authority. But the wicked seek it out. And take it. They want to be in authority. And when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Satan's modus of operation, mode of operation, is consistent. We see it in the dark ages. Rule by power. Our forefathers, there was a saying power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as the Pope and the Catholic Church gained power, and here he's holding pretty much absolute power over the kingdoms of this world, the corruption becomes absolute. The corruption becomes so bad that the Catholic people begin to revolt against it, against the hierarchy. The immorality and and the extortion and the... They begin to see through the facade of, of religion and, and grace and, and all of these fancy words that they use to cover the wickedness beneath. We see the same thing happening here in our politics. And as the wickedness gains power and they begin to call evil good, and then they be call, call that which is good evil because it's an opposition to the evil that they wish to promote. Satan always seeks to silence those who speak out. And they are pushing these agendas. We've talked about the woke agenda. They're... Gun control, this woke agenda, these two are big things that they keep trying to push. They keep trying to push. And when people actually have a say in the matter, it's put down. But you notice how when people were speaking out at school boards against this stuff being taught in the schools, they call the police in, they call the FBI in, and they're labeled as uh, domestic terrorists. Be quiet. Don't speak up. Don't don't oppose these things. 
or we're going to label you something bad. Catholicism labeled the Baptists as heretics, as schismatics, worthy of death. And they called them all sorts of things that they were not guilty of. Just because they knew in the people's minds they would see this label as evil. Was Peter, the way of truth will be evil spoken of. Paul said, after the way they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. And that's what is happening. So when we read about the Crusades, we read about these different things. This is the struggle that is going on behind it. We see one of their new doctrines, transubstantiation, becomes a doctrine of the church. That is when the communion is served, that wafer, when it, the, they teach, when the priest blesses it, it's magically transformed into the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. And the cup, when the priest blesses it, it literally becomes the blood of Christ. So that when you, they, they take it, they're actually eating the flesh of Christ. They're actually drinking His blood. Well, that's pagan. That's not what the Lord said. You know, when you read about in the scriptures, this is a memorial that doesn't save you, but it's picturing the sacrifice that Christ made. His sinless body that was broken and bruised for us. His blood that was shed for our sins, to take away our sins, to redeem us. And he says, when you eat this bread, you know, this is my body. Not literally, but it's figurative. You see, when you drink this cup, this is the, the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Not literally, but figuratively. Because he says, you do, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It said, when, as often as you do this, you show the Lord's death. It's not an actual crucifixion. It's not an actual death. He says, you show the Lord's death till he comes. So here we, I, I do try to keep interjecting Scripture and these doctrines into these lessons as we go uh, so that uh, we're learning not just history, but learning Scripture, learning the Bible, and the, the basis for these struggles. And of course, the Baptist said, hey, that's not right. You know, that's not his blood, that's not his flesh. That's bread and that's wine. You know? Your, your own mind should tell you when you put that in your mouth. That's not flesh, that's bread. That's not blood I'm drinking, that's wine. I know the difference. Well, anyway. We see that from 1095 to 1291, the Crusades was launched to capture the Holy Lamb and Jerusalem for the church and for the Pope. Um, and so for years, there's this bloody conflict with uh, Islam over the possession of the Holy Land. Ultimately, the Muslims win that struggle. 
It's not time yet. God has a timetable also of his own. And he's going to allow Satan to go so far. And then he's going to crush him. But right now we're still in that phase where he's allowing Satan to go so far. Uh, We see that in 1123 the Roman church imposes celibacy upon its clergy. Paul says in 1 Timothy, the pastor is to be the husband of one wife. Marriage was part, I mean, you could be single. I remember at my ordination, one of the men asked me, he said, are you the husband of one wife? I said, no. And everybody was shocked. You can just hear this, they kind of set up straight, there's this intake of breath. I said, I'm not married. <laughs> I got married not too long after I was ordained in January. I got married that May. But, uh, now when I said, no. But marriage is a part. I said, how are you going to know? Now, I don't know. The scripture doesn't say whether Timothy or, or how many of the others. Uh, Timothy was a young man. I mean, he wasn't necessarily a teenager, but he was a young man. And he followed Paul and... He eventually became a pastor himself and was martyred. Um, but we see these things, how they arbitrarily impose these. And I believe that's pagan too. You see, they're, they're becoming more and more pagan in their practice. And, and this just, and the unintended consequences. How many lawsuits are there today against different ones uh, for uh, the homosexuality and things, by imposing this. This is contrary to nature. The Greek church didn't do this. Their priests marry. The Episcopals, when they separated, they don't do this. Their priests marry. They realize this is a bad idea. This does not work well. So anyway... Um, 1139, the persecution of Petrobrusians in Arnoldus. Uh, 1140 to 1205, you have an individual by the name of Peter Waldo who uh, ministered around lions in France. Uh, and a lot of people want to associate and say this is where the Waldensians began. No, he was a Waldensian, but they weren't named after him. Uh, they were named, uh, the name has to do with the valleys, the vale where they were uh, located there in the Alps. And that title existed long before Peter Waldo came along. 1170. Now this is interesting. 1170. You have a Welsh colony established in the New World. In 1170, there is a Welsh prince by the name of Madoc. And when his father dies, he was... There was some controversy, I believe, between him and his brother. And somebody had gotten killed, and his brother was out for him. And he had heard... Now, this is in 1170. He heard... He knew of the new world... And he outfitted with his wealth, I think it was like three ships, loaded them up with their clergy. 
Now, the Welsh clergy at this time, and this is in a, one of the books I read about Madoc, were not subject to the Pope. We've already discussed the Welsh Baptists and where they came from. So this was a Baptist colony of Welsh that came over and they landed in the Gulf, I don't know, either Florida or, or, or somewhere just a little west of Florida, but maybe along the Florida panhandle there is where they landed. And they eventually made their way inland and they disappear. Nobody's heard from them again. Until the western settlers start coming in and moving inland. And they come across this very unique, strange tribe of Indians. Here's a tribe of Indians that they run into. Blonde hair, blue eyes, and they speak Welsh. Hey, where in the world did these people come from? You know, Madoc. So Baptists settled in America long before Christopher Columbus came over and claimed it for Spain and the Church of Rome. That's part of your heritage too. It's not something you're going to find taught in most places. Most people haven't heard of that. We see the crusades against the Albigenses in southern France. We see the in 1229 A.D., the Bible is forbidden to the laity. What were the Waldensians doing? They were taking Scripture to people. People were reading it and getting saved and turning against the Catholic Church. That Bible's dangerous to Satan, to the mystery of iniquity. And so they outlaw it. You possess Scripture, punishable by death. They'll burn the Scripture and you with it. That's what these Waldensian missionaries are facing. We see, uh, as I said, the confessional established. We talked about this before. We have one mediator between Christ and God, or between God and man, and that's Christ. We confess our sins to him, not to a priest. But the confessional. You know, that's the greatest. Think about it, in its time and day. Now today we worry about our cell phones and things being monitored and what you say and what you see. The Catholic confessional is the greatest intelligence gathering system in the world. We see the office of inquisition established. The papacy was realized it's beginning to lose control. And so they create this, the inquisition, the office of the inquisitor uh, to combat heresy, to combat the Baptists, to combat those of their own ranks that were being led astray, if you will. 1311 A.D., sprinkling and pouring are substituted for baptism. Up until that time, immersion remained the primary form of baptism. 
And when we're talking about alien baptism, like I said, prior to 1311, they weren't talking about infant baptism, sprinkling or pouring. Uh, They were talking about immersions that had no authority. The baptisms of the Catholic Church, which had been by immersion. And as I understand, the Greek Catholics still immerse, even babies. They immerse them. So, that was the mode. And it was still alien baptism, unscriptural baptism, even though it was by immersion. So today, sometimes we, uh, some of these Baptists take, well, as long as it's immersion. No. That immersion by itself does not equate to scriptural baptism. There's a number of things there. But anyway, in Revelation, he says, if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to kill your children with death. One of the unintended consequences, perhaps, but from 1347 to 1351, you had the plague that swept Europe. It was known as the Black Death. And this decimated the population. Now, another unintended consequence of the Crusades was these people was going over there in the East, and they still had books. They still had learning. They still, you know, taught people some things. And, and they're being introduced, and they're starting to bring back literature and these different things. And it was an awakening that began to take place. And we refer to it as the Renaissance period. And the Renaissance and the Reformation, the Renaissance laid the foundation then for the Reformation that comes later. And we'll close with that that thought. But we see even in this period of time, as a result of this, in... One of the things that happened, there was universities began to be built around the world. And there were some universities in England. And a Catholic professor in one of these universities is a man by the name of John Wycliffe. And he was studying the Greek and the Hebrew. And he wanted the English people to be able to read the scriptures in their own language. And he began to translate the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into the English. And many of his students, and they would go out and they'd do what? They'd pass out scripture in English. And there was a movement in England at this time. There was another group that this fit perfectly with what they were doing. And they were known as the Lollards. You know who the Lollards were? They were started by a Waldensian missionary by the name of Lollard. And so here's the Waldensian influence in England at the time that Wycliffe is translating the scriptures into English. And they become, become a, a partner with and support Wycliffe and what he's doing. Anyway, we will close with that. There, there's just so much. But I hope that this continues to be a blessing to you and that we learn more about our history and heritage 
that we might purpose and dedicate ourselves to continue to serve and follow the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you.